0: so we we've had a, a drink and a discussion about Mikhail's work um, over the last 15 sixteen years, and so the way this is going to work is that we're going to look at um, his work chronologically we're ending um, ending with the most recent work that's on at Sherman um, it's been fantastic dealing with with scarf on this project and and implementing that and tying it into the first year, first semester subject, which has as an overall theme, um, this world reimagined. And when I think of an artist that um, embraces that philosophy and and that concept, um, Mikhail uh, works very well with that. Mikhail works also with three, the number three a lot, and embraces that within a number of his works that we're going to see tonight and if you look at the catalogue, the beautiful catalogue that Scarf has presented, has published, um, it has, and the way the work is presented in the space, it's uh, a three times three, which uh, um, last time I did maths, equaled nine. Um, so I'm going to ask nine questions and then we're going to throw it over to the over to the audience. So my, my first question of the night is, I love the catalogue, can you sign it for me? Sure. While we're talking. There's a pen, just um, to Greg. Thanks. That'll be great. Um, while you're doing that, so that's question one, question two. Um, I wanted to Go back to your undergraduate study, and also wanted to go back to your study before that. I want to look, um, talk about you growing up and when you first became interested in photography and how that came about. Sorry, still okay. You're doing black on black. <laughs> I'll find a page for you. So, when did you first become interested in photography? Maybe
1: just do the handheld. Yeah. Oh, is it muted? No, it's not. We just have to go with the handheld. Yeah.
0: can you hear me now? So the question, question two was when did you first become interested in photography as a format?
1: I can speak, I can speak now. Um, I became... Sorry, what was the question?
0: When did you first become interested in photography as a format? Um, I've got an hour and a half in here, so it's, it's fine.
1: When I was 18, um, I went to, to, to Europe, um, and I, I worked in a bar, and then I wanted to go traveling to Southeast Asia, so uh, my uncle suggested that I take a camera with me, and um, yeah, so, and, uh, so I bought a camera, he told me which one to buy, and, and then yeah, it kind of really took off from there, like um, the more I did the photography, the more I enjoyed it, So yeah,
0: when I was 18. So was there an interest in art before that?
1: Yeah, I, I was into painting when I was at high school and I, I thought I was very good, but it turns out I wasn't.
0: Okay. We might come back to the, the, the painting later in the in the, in the talk. Um, your, you said your uncle? Yeah, my uncle's a very good photographer. His
1: name's um, Gideon Mendel. And um, once I bought that camera, he taught me most of the things I know about photography.
0: So you're... you're training before you went to art college was through your uncle?
1: Through him being tough on me and, and um, basically saying everything that I did was crap. Okay,
0: so how, how did that Was he in England at the time?
1: Or? Yeah, but um, he, he is South African um, and he, he, he's done a lot of work in South Africa um, initially as a struggle photographer in the 80s and then in the 90s he did the most important body of work on HIV and AIDS in Africa um, so, and then in the 2000s that continued, so he was constantly coming and staying with us on his way to wherever he was working.
0: So, was he exhibiting in galleries?
1: Uh, a mixture, yeah, he did a show, I remember at the National Gallery in Cape Town, and, but primarily he, his background is as a photojournalist and, and he does long-term documentary projects.
0: Right. So, he was a, a, a heavy influence on you as a, as a sort of late teen, early 20s? Yeah, I'd say so. I
1: kind of um, uh,
0: yeah, yeah. I kind of wanted to do the kind of work that he did. Okay. So, were you trying to mimic that sort of work in when you were travelling in Asia? I, I guess so. Yeah, very much so. Okay. Um, what what was the style that you were trying to mimic?
1: Um, well, his his work is incredibly um, engaged and intimate um, with his subjects. Um, and I guess that's something I admired about it. It felt um, it felt honest and direct and um, engaged. I guess is the word. Um, and then I guess when when I went to art school, I started kind of really discovering other forms of photography, particularly in South Africa. And the big example there would be David Gorblat, who um, on the surface has a more kind of um, one call it. Could call it maybe a dispassionate eye, uh, more of a sense of distance, and and uh, maybe a pretense of objectivity in his work, but um, still very very engaged and
0: committed to a kind of political narrative. What sort of, in terms of content, what sort of stuff was he? Take? I don't know him as a as a photographer.
1: Goblet's
0: uh, kind of
1: South Africa's preeminent photographer, and, and has been photographing um, for more than fifty years now. Um, the landscape and the topography of South Africa in relation to the politics, so whereas a lot of the photographers, like my uncle um, were kind of actively members of the anti apartheid struggle, Gorbelat never really wanted to associate himself with any political ends, even though his his work is harshly critical of apartheid. it does it in a more oblique kind of fashion, looking at um, you know, deeper structures. Um, the way politics writes itself into the topography and that's something that influenced my work a lot. And after wanting to be like my uncle, I traded him in and wanted
0: to be like okay. Did Was your uncle the one that recommended this particular art school that you went to?
1: No, no, it's just, um, it's the art school at the University of Cape Town. And um, I just went there because it was there and I was going to study something else and then I was into the photography. So,
0: what were you going to study? Uh,
1: To to be a a medicine doctor.
0: Um. So you came back from overseas. How old were you when you started uni? Uh,
1: Nineteen.
0: Okay, so you had a gap year. Do they call it a gap year? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. So Asia. Did you go anywhere else? Um. I went to Slovakia
1: and to London and to uh, Southeast Asia.
0: Okay. Great. And. In terms of leading up to that study and just going back to high school for a minute, were there any other great passions that you had at high school apart from painting which you say you weren't very good at?
1: Uh, I was into um, science and botany and soccer.
0: Okay. I can see the science and botany in in the subsequent work. Not so much the soccer but I think there might be a connection there when we we, we go to look at some of the work. I Look forward to discovering it yeah I, I, can, I, can, I can find stuff that 's not there very easily, so we 'll we'll see how we go um, what was What was art school like um,
1: It was great um, in retrospect you, i mean if you 're at any institution, I think you constantly complain about it, but in retrospect, it was an incredibly incredible privilege to have four years at art school. Um, they worked us quite hard there, but there was an incredible amount of space to experiment. And um, uh, so I, I feel very like grateful that I had that time. I, I didn't just do photography, I also did, I did a lot of sculpture and bad painting and, and some
0: drawing. Okay, so was there a point when you decided to major in photography? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I think that was from the beginning, I, I, that was my intention, because it was really photography that I was was the reason why I was there.
0: Um, uh, as it was a art college as part of the university, were you involved with other faculties or other areas of the university? Um, that was actually
1: one of the main reasons why I went there is I wanted to do some courses in um, philosophy and anthropology and, and sociology. But it turned out to be quite difficult with the schedule, so um, I didn't do as much as I wanted.
0: Right, so how did... Um, because we can see, we, we can see that's sort of interest in philosophy and anthropology in in your work. How, how did how did did you? Was it through osmosis? How did you sort of develop uh, that sort of research or study if you weren't doing classes?
1: I had a bad history of dating anthropologists.
0: <laughs> They're the worst, especially if you're a photographer. Yeah. Okay, very good. Um, So, four years? is that including an honours year, or was that a... Uh, I guess, yes, probably. Okay, so, and the first work we're going to look at, which is on the... Do you mind bringing it up as a... Is it what we're looking at here, hopefully, um, no, that's not no, it. Not that uh, slide one. Slide one. Sorry. Okay. We are getting to um, why, Danielle? How do we go? I don't know this think, How do we go full screen? Uh, there we go. This one. Yep. So the first work we're going to look at is from the. Um, do you remember if this was your honors project, or was this uh,
1: yeah, yeah, I guess it would be because it was my fourth year so so
0: i didn 't call it honors there, but so you do a three year degree and then you
1: it 's all together, so you just do four
0: years Okay. i found I, so I went when i did I did painting and screen printing and photography as my undergraduate, and I found that it was only about halfway through that fourth year that I really started things started to come together for me. Do you think that the having a four year degree sort of helped with that? Yeah, I I, I started
1: this project exactly halfway through my fourth year, this okay. defeat hooker, so I guess things did come together then. Do you wanna just tell us about this? Um, this image or the the the, pro- project. the, the, the project. project, so um, it happened to be two thousand and four when I was when I was doing when I was in fourth year and um, I was, um, there was an election in that year, 10 years after our democracy in uh, 1994. It was our third democratic election. There was a big court case around whether prisoners could or couldn't vote, and this kind of struck me as a very interesting phenomenon in a country where so many of our political leaders had spent so much time in prison. Um, it just felt like a really crazy question to be asking about whether prisoners could or couldn't vote, given that most prisoners come out of prison and go back into society. Um, and uh, there was also in 2004, a particular high high or low point, depending how you want to put it, in, in, in crime and the kind of freak out, the middle class freak out in response to crime in South Africa. Um, and of course, the kind of endpoint of crime is, is prison in, in the way society is set up um, and so there was a lot of kind of people saying that we must have harsher penalties and um, we must have bring back the death penalty to as a kind of way of um, preventing crime um, and so so prisons just kind of I guess uh, became something I was interested in um, and uh I was quite moved by uh, our Chief Justice Chaskelson's um, judgment in that case where he reaffirmed the right of prisoners to vote and spoke about how, how that right is a cherished right that so many people had fought for and that it's something we must guard at all costs for for kind of all citizens of South Africa. Um, and uh, so I was moved by that and then happened to meet somebody who was running the elections in the prison. So I, I just got access to... to um, to photograph prisoners holding up their ballot papers, which um, actually doesn't really, those pictures don't form part of the series that that I show. But, but after that, then I realised I saw the inside of the prison for the first time, and I, and I just realised how much um, the, that system was kind of part of our society in in very practical ways. But. Um, in representational ways, not a part of our society at all. People imagine prisons to be these dangerous, horrible places, but nobody actually knew what they looked like. Um, and then reading Foucault shortly afterwards, um, in particular Discipline and Punish, I realized the degree to which the history of the penal system was set up to do exactly that, to kind of um, separated out um, from society, and you know, really criminalise a whole group of people, um, and 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 my kind of experience was the the system was functioning in that way in South Africa exactly like that, like it had for hundreds of years in Europe. So, it became then a, a bigger interest and a bigger queer, uh, kind of inquiry of mine of, of wanting to kind of make visible the hidden parts of society.
0: Yeah, you talk about that a lot in. Um interviews and, t- in, and it's quite evident in the work over the last decade and a half. Um, I'm just wondering, this particular series it, it, they're very intimate portraits but they also talk about the there's a lot that deals with this, the space that these, these people are in and, and you see that in the, in the um, title The Four Corners like the four corners of the room all the, these small spaces that they, they live in. Um, I'm just wondering about those portraits and the way you've shot them, it's very intimate and I was wondering how that you managed to get that relationship with, with your subjects.
1: Um, I, well, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I hadn't ever done a kind of project of this intensity and um, I kind of... Once I got the access to the prison, it was like really the, the, it was like I had to write letters for three months or so to kind of get the access, but once I was there, like they just, you know, they assigned me to a warder and then I would ask a warder to lock me in a cell with, you know, like 60, 70 prisoners, um, it was crazy conditions like a cell, which is designed for 18, had 60 or 70 prisoners calling it a home, and, and that's what I, I mean, one of the primary things that I tried to represent was that kind of sense of of overcrowding, um, uh, which makes a kind of mockery of, of the kind of uh, the, the, the principles but behind um, kind of punishment. Um, but uh, yeah, so I just kind of would like spend some time getting to know people. I, I uh, once, once people knew that there was this photographer, everybody wanted their photograph taken, and, and, and also because I was trying to kind of, uh, I guess, be good, um, that I would, I would, uh, I'd print out the photographs and um, give them back to everybody I photographed. And then when they heard I was giving out portraits, I would, um, everybody wanted one. In the end, I had to like say, no, no can I take some of my own photographs? Because everybody it was such a valuable commodity to have a, a print. That one could send to one's wife or girlfriend or child, or um,
2: art gallery. Um.
1: Well, I didn't even know anything about art galleries then. You know, I, I didn't. Know. I think part no,
0: of the I think re- the prisoners were sending them to galleries to get. <laughs> yeah. um, do you want to um, just tell us about this photo? This one.
1: Okay, that one. Um, well that that's um the main exercise yard in Polesmoor prison and polsmore prison is is a very notorious prison kind of um it's uh Cape Town where I grew up um is one of the most violent um cities in the world when it comes to the murder rate and um a lot of kind of gang gang fighting and Drugs and and things like that, um, and there's notorious gangs in the prisons um, and on the outside, and so Polsmoor is kind of seen as the kind of, yeah, the kind of heart of of gangland Cape Town. But ironically, it's like just a couple of kilometres down the road from where I grew up, which I think, in retrospect, um, must be one of the reasons why I was interested in going there. Um, and you know I grew up in a typical white middle-class suburbia so it couldn't be more of a contrast to the context in which I grew up but literally down the road. Um, but anyway this photograph, the, that, that wall separates the um, sentenced prisoners from the unsentenced prisoners, so yeah sentenced from unsentenced and um, the, um, I mean the crazy thing about prisons and the judicial backlog in South Africa is that people can spend up to two three years in prison before they even get a trial because there's such a backlog. So I mean you can't really see the conditions in the cells in this in this picture but um, it's just terrible and imagine spending like two three years in those conditions locked up and then the court finds you not guilty you know that's really kind of destroyed a good chunk of your life. so it's, it's absolutely crazy. It doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but uh, th- those are, are prisoners climbing between the two sections. There's not really any way they can control that.
0: With the uh, the judges finding that they were allowed to vote, did, when, did that happen before you started the project or after?
1: Yeah, the finding
0: was before I
1: started. And then the first pictures I took were on that election day of, of prisoners voting.
0: When When you were living down the road from it, what was your impression of the, in terms of a, a, a view, was it just a sort of, like, was it just in the local neighbourhood?
1: Yeah, we would, we'd, you know, we'd drive past it on the way to the beach, <laughs> um, and literally across, the, It's there's actually a, I once pulled a, Google Maps image of this prison, and literally across the road from it, there's like this five-star golf estate and wine tasting venue and all that kind of stuff. Okay.
0: Um, how does how does this type of space work as a metaphor for you? Uh, I know when I when I think of traditional cinema and I think of people like Robert Altman and and his film Nashville and how Nashville was set in the bicentenary and it's a, even though it's about a particular town it 's actually about America, um, I think the TV show Deadwood did the same thing. Um, how does this relate in terms of a, a broader sort of metaphor for south Africa
1: um, for me the the kind of broader metaphor is is quite personal, so I see the inside and the outside because I, I followed this defeat hooker the four corners up with a second series called um Shiguana. Um, which was the outside and um, so the initial impulse was to show show a part of the society that I found was very um, uh, hidden away but kind of fundamental to the kind of traumatized society I grew up in. Um, uh, I also became very aware through anthropologist anthropologist friends that i didn 't want to fetishize that inside it was very exotic with you know crazy things happening, gang warfare and all that kind of stuff and i didn 't want to make it into i didn't want to exoticize it um, and and I wanted to integrate it into our imaginations um, rather than keep it as this, this this thing that was other so my way of doing that my attempt at doing that was to photograph Umjguana, which is the outside. Um, and, and, and that focused on the lives of people that spent time in prison, ex-prisoners, and a photograph like this of a man called Hermanus um, comes with, uh, when I exhibit text about his life and how his life um, was uh, affected by being inside prison. But um, to get back to your question, I really think that for me, it's about the kind of conscious and unconscious. It's about looking at the parts of society that designed to be hidden away and not to be thought of and and that there's a kind of psychological good in a broader sense of the way we live can be done by by integration of of, of the different sides of, the, of society
0: these are not you sort of standard these are not the images that you would see in traditional media outlets and 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 the, and the way it's sort of been presented and even, even, just going because these were also these are the panorama works or was it? These are uh,
1: they're not. I, I did full three hundred and sixty degree panoramas that were stitched together. These are just like single shot panoramas uh, done on a on a panoramic camera. Okay.
0: And why why a
1: panorama? Um, good question. I mean, these um, the 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 full three hundred and sixty degree panoramas I did. Um, because I was copying my uncle <laughs> who, was, uh, who, was, who was already doing them at the time, I just um, he taught me the technique and, and I thought it would really apply very well to the to the prison situation where literally you know uh, the amount of kind of bodies in these cells couldn 't be fitted in a frame and and then the kind of the, the, the full three hundred and sixty degree around one was reminiscent for me of the panopticon, which was Bentham's design for, for for a prison, which was written about by Foucault in Discipline and Punish, and, and that kind of that, all-seeing all gaze around one with myself, the photographer, as the kind of unacknowledged in the photograph uh, seer, who might or might not be watching. That kind of that fitted that scheme, which was really the basis of what I was interested in. Yeah, it's
0: so interesting because, generally, with panoramic words, they're of vistas or of. Historically, they were of painter panoramas, were of famous historical scenes, and so very grand, grand vistas. And what you're doing is this really small internal space with with no no views, and and, and presenting it as a as a panorama that you there's there's nothing to look at except the, the internal. Um, so is that the only time that you've worked with Panoramic Works, or uh, Panoramic Stills?
1: I, I did. Um, I did some more. Um, uh, so uh, I, I did more in Ongjigwana and also in Burford West. The next series after that, and I did one or two with the Ponty City um, body of work with um, Patrick Waterhouse. Um, what was interesting about that is we were in this circular building. Where all the apartments are on the outside in these wedge shapes, which are, which are kind of just like the the, the, um, the cells in Bentham's um, Panopticon, uh, and ironically, where the where the guard, where the watcher should be, is just this massive open kind of um, hole. Uh, so. Uh, there was It was really interesting that to do a panorama, and the other irony was that when when you do a panorama in a confined space like, like you were saying in a prison cell, it kind of distorts the shapes of the walls and the and the roof and everything it all kind of twists into this kind of weird pattern. And when you do a panorama in a circular building, it flattens it all out. So there was a a number of stuff we picked up on there in Ponte City that relates to the panorama. Also with the vista, I think we'll talk about this, the doors, the windows and the televisions, kind of the looking out, we kind of very crudely stitched together into panoramas. But, um,
0: yeah. Okay, great. And I just wanted to talk about the the person in this particular photo because this is someone that you've worked with and had a relationship over the last um, 10 years. That's just wondered if you could talk about him.
1: Yeah, so Hermanus, um, I, I met on this building site, he'd come out of prison and um, had lost most of his family and uh, he, he got a job laying bricks on this building, these fancy apartments in central Cape Town. Um, and he he actually approached me. He was like, "Why why are you taking photographs?" Um, and I was like, "I'm doing a project." And then he was like, "Okay, take a picture of me." So he was kind of really interested in, in in what I was doing, which um, which reflects the way that I've kind of written his a char- I've written a character around him in Why, which is the film that I'm showing at Scaf, um, um, and and Hermanus, the fictional character in Why, approaches a metal detectorist in in a very similar manner to the way that the real Hermanus approached me with real interest in what he was doing. Um, I took this picture of Hermanus and um, kind of uh, kept in contact with him and, uh, you know, see him every now and again uh, since then. Um, And then I started writing this character of a homeless man um, and realized that he would be the right Person to play the character, so he's in fact Nina Mael In her in her essay in the SCAF catalogue, speaks very very nicely, I think, of the the way he's kind of transversed this world from my documentary work into my fictional
0: work. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting transition. I just wanted to jump to the next slide, which is um, should be from Beaufort West, the, the next series. And do you want to just uh, do an introduction to the to the. Pro, the project
1: yeah so when, when I finished *Umjigwana*, uh, I was still interested in these um, kind of broader issues of the cycles of crime and punishment um, and and i guess the response of people across all all spectrums of society to that cycle um, and um, by then i'd been very influenced by David goblat's work and he did a uh, iconic book in the 60s called um, In Boxburg um, which is a portrait of a small town just outside Johannesburg um, and it really um, functions beautifully as a as a metaphor for, for South Africa in those times he kind of manages to, to by kind of moving through the town and the different aspects of society he kind of really gives one a sense of what South Africa was like in the 60s and the early 70s and so my ambition was to do the same with Beaufort West and and it starts, all my work kind of follows from each, from the previous project. Um, so I started at the prison and I chose Beaufort West, the small town, because it's got this very bizarre prison in the, in the middle of a traffic circle in the centre of the town. So I kind of um, start the project with this aerial view of the prison um, and then move out into the town, kind of wander through the town, uh, discovering what I discover... And then end up back through the police, spending time with the police and the police cells, and then back in the prison, at the heart of of of, of the town. And it's actually really interesting. It's a pity we don't have the slides up because the final panorama that I did for both the west was of this interior courtyard of a prison, of the prison, um, which the prisoners had painted landscape, um, so it's this vista, exactly the vista that you described as being the kind of prime subject metaphor, panorama, um, yet it was kind of imagined um, by prisoners who were stuck inside these four walls and it was also unpeopled, it was this kind of idyllic, unpeopled landscape. And Was it based on a natural
0: landscape, was it painted by, from memory or was it
1: memory? Yeah, it was painted by memory and is very much the landscape around that town. Um, so what I feel I do with the series
0: is, is to go out into
1: that landscape
0: and to repeople it. Speaking of, because you just talked about you you did it almost like a cycle, where you start with the prison, work out to the extremities of the town, and then you end up back in in the prison. It, which is a cyclic a cyclic narrative, and it's the way um, Y works. I'm just wondering when you. Are you consciously putting the the photos in order as you shoot them? Like, is the way it's presented in in the book or in the gallery? Is there a particular way that you want people to, or order that you want people to read your photos?
1: Um, It depends very much on the project. Both at West, I think, I don't think I had such a clear idea when I started of the sequence. Um, That really came from looking at what I had done three years later. Um, and finding a kind of narrative thread. So in the book, Beaufort West, um, yes, I think I do, I do want that sequence to be at least kind of, uh, you know, you know all, all the best kind of photo essays have a structure and whatever that structure might be, I think it, it does guide the viewer through the work even if they're not aware of what it is.
0: But was, it, was the sequence topographic? Was it, did it relate to the space? Was it spatially correct to that city? No, no. It, it, it was for me like this kind of aerial
1: panoptic view, sorry not panoptic, the scopic view, this godlike view to start with. It was literally a shot from a helicopter of the traffic circle with a prison in it. Um, and um, then, um, then the next photograph is another aerial photograph of a poor area in the town and then I kind of got down into that. So it, I, I see it as a walk through the town, I kind of like a flinier kind of wandering through the town. Yeah. And was there text, I don't know that book, was there a text with it as well? Yeah, there was a text by a writer called Johnny Steinberg. So a South African writer?
0: Yeah. Okay. Do you want to tell us about this particular image?
1: Um, yeah, so this is the Malies family um, and um, I'm trying to remember actually, I don't know if I remember how I met them for the first time, but um, the I think... I spent a lot of time with them. Um, got to know them. Still in contact with them. Um, the it was quite a devastating situation, to be honest. Um, the the woman, well, the young woman sitting in the middle at the back, is called Michelle Malise, and she um, at the time was was supporting the family predominantly by working as a as a prostitute. Um, and uh, her father, who is on the right hand side of the image. Um, also got a disability grant, so um, that also provided a little bit of income. And um, they they didn't really drink, but they drank on the day after the disability income came in, which was this day, and they'd been drinking a little bit, and and Bonita, the cousin of Michelle, who also lives there, you know, all these people that you see in the photograph live in that two-room house, and Bonita was a little bit drunk, and she was singing an old school hymn,
0: um, yeah, and crying. Yeah, I just love the composition of this particular photo, and the, and the light. Um, was it staged, or was it just you just shot off a series of?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't stage it. Um, I, the way I would work um, when I was taking photographs is. Um, often on a tripod, um, so I was actually like sitting in the corner with the camera on a tripod. Um, I kind of would set it up kind of roughly the composition I thought would be right and then had a had a cable release um, and, and so I wasn't looking through the viewfinder most of the time I took the picture, so I, I could kind of talk and I'm not like a, somebody who believes that there is a Uh, kind of fly on the wall so um, that that photography can be objective, that one can capture a kind of truth without um, influencing it at all. So um, it wasn't staged at all, but I also didn't want to kind of, and I don't want to hide the fact that I think my presence kind of uh, influenced what what happened and and, and the scene. So I would kind of sit in the corner and talk and engage with people. And because I wasn't looking through the camera, I, I, I felt like I was present.
0: I'm just wondering with, with a photograph like this, um, how many rolls of film would you go through to get this one photo? Uh, I don't know, maybe three or four. Okay. And uh, large format? Or th- uh,
1: it's medium format, so that would be 10, ten shots on a roll.
0: So for thirty images, then how long would you spend with the family to get this image?
1: Um, well, it was it was really. Um, I mean, I probably spent. I mean, I spent a couple of months visiting them and getting to know them, um, and then there's a, the next picture in the book. Actually, is like from three years afterwards, so kind of the beginning and the end of the project. Um, so. Uh, but on that particular day, I can't remember how long I was there.
0: Okay. You talked just a minute ago about not not being a spectator for the for these scenes, and uh, there was something you said in in it might have been a TEDx talk about the three ways a photographer should see the world, and I'm just wondering if you could share that with us. Do you remember that? Um,
1: I do. Uh, to be honest, I can't remember exactly what those three ways were, but I do remember that. I can the... tell you. Oh, okay, cool.
0: I have notes,
1: which I can't read. The most important one is the internal, I think. Yeah, that
0: was one. Yeah, good, good guess. Just um, fill fill the um, awkward silence for me, if you can. I need light, sorry, uh, or glasses. Um, No, it's all right, I can find it. Here we go.
1: So you found it, but you want me to read it. Oh, okay, do you want me to read it to you? I'll read it for you if you like. You said it. Uh, I don't trust
0: anything I said. Um, So we need to see in three ways in the. Uh, in, ah, yes. Yep. What's in front of us with acute eyes.
1: We need to see beyond the structures that hide much of the world from us, political, social, and economic. And we need to look into ourselves.
0: That's the I'm, most important. And I think that's important for for the first three series because you are dealing with closed systems that. And you've slowly been expanding out over these these first three projects, and 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 you can, unlike what was the name of the photographer that you really liked, but he was distant. Uh, David Goldblatt. David Goldblatt. Uh, uh, you, you don't seem to remove yourself from these situations, and you become very, you develop a relationship with your subjects. For instance, um, yeah. Um, and I'm, 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 I was trying to get you to talk about soccer, and how and how you got uh, developed a relationship with the prisoners in, in, in the first piece. Uh,
1: well, you know that was just because um,
0: your real passion. You wanted to be a soccer player.
1: Yeah, um, I wasn't good enough. But um, when when I was in the prison, apart from what I said earlier of people wanting me to take their picture the whole time, people I, I think were quite wary of me. But then. Every time they got an exercise break, there were these like um, big games of of soccer in the in the exercise yard. And when I see a soccer ball going, I can't resist getting involved. So I just gave my camera to somebody to look after, um, and and started playing. And when they saw that this white boy could play, but then they kind of changed
0: the way they engaged
1: with me a little bit.
0: Have you used that as a technique for engaging with other
1: other subjects?
0: Um,
1: no. Can't think of. You're
0: still, you're still in your early 30s at this time. Um, can we go to the next slide, please? Yeah, I was trying to get the soccer stuff out earlier, but you just weren't going there. So. I... Okay, we can talk about soccer if you want. Yeah, you were a you were a defender, which I, I'm not sure where that works symbolically in your work. <laughs> um, but no, using, it's just you, you're the... using the, the the mirror of the camera as a, a as a line of defence. For, between you and the subject. I don't know. No, I'm, no, I, I no, might no. be reading too much into it. It's purely just because of lack of skill. Okay. Um, I love this work, by the way. Thanks. So this, this was a collaborative work that you did over six years. Um, is it Ponta City? Ponta City. And so, um, I don't know if anyone's seen this particular tower. It was used... Um, in what's the Neil Blomkamp's um, Blom, Blomkamp? Uh, uh, district Nine, I think it was district, used in, and yeah. I think it was used in what's the robot one? Chappie. Chappie, is that the name of it? Yep. Okay. Um, I think, um, but it's something that it's a, it's you know the interior, and it's a very it's one of those classic. Architectural buildings that keeps popping up. I think even um, Philip Bloom the, um, um, did a a terrible little sort of faux documentary piece about the space as well. So it's a very documented thing. But you decided to sort of go it against the sort of traditional ways of seeing that space and and find something new. And it happened at the same. You got involved the with that building and with your. Um, um, what was the name of the artist that you worked with? Patrick Waterhouse. Patrick, with Patrick. As the the owners of the building were kicking out some of the tenants? Yeah, so um,
1: the, there was... There's a long story behind this building, but um, we I met Patrick on a residency at Fabrica in Italy in 2007, and we kind of really hit it off and just really wanted to find a project to work together on. Um, and then I, I went back to South Africa uh, in 2008, I guess, and um, and a journalist friend of mine asked me to go to Ponte just to take some pictures because there was this very interesting attempt to kind of revitalize it and um, kind of, it, it had been in the 80s and 90s notorious as this kind of slum building um, that was the most dangerous city, uh, building in the city and it was kind of yeah, mythologized to be this terrible place, and and these developers were kind of uh, wanting to turn it into kind of modern uh, New York style kind of um, fancy apartments, um, and so which is what it was
0: initially set up as, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah,
1: yeah. So it was set up. It was built and completed in 1976, um, and a lot of the project um, that me and Patrick do is to look at this kind of story and myth. Um, and fantasy that surrounds the building. So we have advertisement from the 70s and we have next to advertisements from 2007, 2008 and really look at the way the building was kind of mythologized initially in the 70s to be better than it could ever be and in the 80s and 90s to be worse than it actually was. Um, and that kind of myth-making and fantasy is really what is at the heart of the project. Um,
0: yeah. And that kind of ties into this, not obsession, but this idea of threes and how you deal with the past, the present and the future of spaces as well. And that's very much to the fore in, 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 in the current work that's in Australia at the moment. In Speaking of threes, we have three light boxes here um, and it kind of ties into your three ways of working as a photographer as well. Do you want to just tell us what we're seeing in these three?
1: I'm a little bit freaked out by this three business because I wasn't so aware of it. Um, the, the, the three light boxes you see are, are the, um, the, the windows, doors and the televisions of, of Pointy City. So it started with the windows. Um, we had this idea that if we took a photograph of every window in the building and because it's a round building and we if we placed all the pictures um, kind of Correctly, as we'd taken them floor by floor and window by window, we'd get this kind of roughly stitched panorama of the landscape so around you the building.
0: Focal length and
1: yeah, yeah, it was all done. W- well, we called it semi-German because we we're trying to be as German as possible about the whole business, <laughs> um, and uh, it wasn't always possible because um, there'd be a new false wall put in that we couldn't get far back enough for. You know, it was quite it was semi-German, um, and. Um, uh, yeah, so so we started with the windows, and then to get to the windows, we had to knock on the door of every apartment. Um, and we noticed that the doors were really interesting as well. In fact, you can probably see the
0: doors on on, on the that side of the the picture. So the, what we we're, see, we're seeing the windows in the middle. Yes. Right? And on the left, what are we looking
1: at? The televisions, but I'll get to that. So the doors. Um, we started photographing, as well as the windows, because um, uh, you, you can actually kind of read the history of the building with the doors, like the lower down the the blue doors are they 're not actually blue they 're black, but they' put blue lights in during that attempt to to um, refurbish the building and then they went the, 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 the developers went bankrupt in two thousand and eight and the whole thing collapsed, so you see a lot of those blue lights have been removed, or they didn't complete the top half of the building. Towards the top, you see the red doors, which were the original doors from the 70s. And it's tiny here, I don't think anybody will be able to see it, but like right at the bottom, there are two red doors which say um, white men only and white women only. Um, and there were these doors that had remained, like they were kind of hidden away in, in a part of the building that wasn't used anymore, but like just this, it was literally like. The end of two years of going up and down this building, taking these pictures, it was like an archaeological find of this kind of time capsule from the apartheid years, which was very shocking that it hadn't been painted over. Um, so we see those doors as, a, as an archaeology of the building that kind of reveal the, the different layers of the building's history. Um, and and so that's why we did the doors. The, the, the windows um, were interesting because me and Patrick were really drawn to the to the views, it's spectacular. It's a tall 54-story building in the middle of the city, so they're incredible views. But we found that a lot of people had kind of covered up their windows and with thick curtains, and the colors were really interesting, so we'd just photograph the curtain. Or sometimes people wanted to be in the picture, and then there would be a silhouette in front of the window. But the reason why people covered their windows was to make it darker for their televisions. And uh, while we were wanting to look out the windows, people in the building were look, wanting to look at their televisions. So the, the metaphor there is obvious, like the, the, the alternative window out of the building that spoke to people's dreams, people's fantasies, people's kind of um, projections of where they
0: would want to be. Aspirational. Aspirational. And it's an aspir- it was an aspirational building, or well, they tried to make it an aspirational building. Um. Just in terms of the way you've presented the work here, um, is the aspect ratio of the frames matching the building? Um, roughly. Okay. Um,
1: it's. I mean, the, 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 it's all kind of more different than it looks. Um, we, uh, but, but we kind of made decisions about how big the images would be to get them roughly to that kind yeah. of... Uh, what,
0: um, so w- what was... What was the, was that a negotiating with with the other artists in terms of the size of it? Like, what made you decide to present it this way? I guess is the question. So, by negotiating him in, like, yeah, because work, you were working, you, were, you you weren't you weren't the solo artist. And oh, the... with
1: Patrick, no. Well, we did negotiate about a lot of things, but not that. Um, no, we, we um we. I mean, it was an incredible collaboration. We did literally everything together. Um, you know, uh, for for six years, uh, taking every picture together, making every design
0: decision together—it was extraordinary. Um, but but the, normally, you'd uh, you'd want when you think of a, a landscape shot or a view out a window, you want a you want detail in that in, in that vista. And you've you've gone the other way; you've gone for smaller images. It's almost reads like a, an infographic of three ways of seeing this building.
1: Yeah, but it, I mean, all those decisions come from the material in front of us. So we really kind of tried to make a best decision based on how to represent what what we were what we were interested in. So the the compromise of making the pictures smaller allowed one to show. The whole building on a kind of manageable scale. Those things are quite tall; they're four meters, so each image is about about that big. Um, you do lose a lot of detail, but you get the sense of these lives being piled on top of each other and the relationship between um, the different um, the different uh, views, like you say, the three views. And the, and the idea actually came from a quote by Le Corbusier, who said that the essence of a building is defined by its apertures. Um, so essentially what we did is we photographed all the apertures and removed the concrete that oh, surrounds them.
0: All the, all the views. all the, um, all the uh, With the doors, were, were any of them open? Or were they all just the
1: closed yeah, doors? To yeah, the so um, we actually, Patrick and I argued a lot about this in between knocking on doors, about whether we kind of wanted more of the closed doors or the open doors. And I always said that I wanted... More closed doors because it showed the kind of history and how the doors had been adapted or changed. And he always said, no, he wanted to be more interesting and alive. Because often when we knocked on doors, we'd ask people if they'd stand for a portrait. Um, and we argued about it, but it was kind of beyond our control because often people wouldn't be there or they wanted to be photographed or they didn't want to be photographed. So it was kind of random in the end, which is probably what was best because you get this kind of, this kind of, uh, uh, kind of. Uh, obstruction in front of you of of the doors and the security gates but then every now and again it opens up into this warmth of this portrait and this interior domestic space.
0: Can we go to the next slide? So this is just a a close-up of the um, door slide. For those that couldn't see. um, And the next one, Bettina? Sorry, uh, sorry said that slide. Okay, so this is the part of the retinal shift work, which is a, a, a big work, and a, and a, and a big, sh- uh, re- uh, apart from, I mean, it's in the title, there's, there's a big shift for you at this point in 2012. Um, I may have made too much... Um, over the beer about you turning 30 during the making of this work and relating to you. a change that people tend to do at that sort of, same, that, that sort of age where they sort of may shift careers or may shift focus. And although the timing is perfect for, um, for your sudden return. Um, so what we have here is... Um, is it your first foray into moving image work? Yeah,
1: um, so, so retinal shift, actually the title, most people think that it is, like you say, about a kind of shift in perspective, but it's actually not, well, it doesn't really matter what it is, but for me it's about the shift of light on the retina, the way the light moves on the retina. Um, which is one of the reasons why I chose that title. I, I made those two portraits. You can see them on the left-hand side of my own retinas. And I was just struck by this moment where um, the optometrist, um, you know, attached this apparatus to my eyes and um, it flashed just as that picture was taken because they have to get light in there. And um, so I was blinded by this flash. And, and so to make a self-portrait of myself as a photographer at a moment that I cannot see, just really felt like a, a quite a profound thing to do in relation to a body of work which was really dealing with my ambivalence around the photographic process and the, the making of representations and and the gaze
0: and it also dealt with repurposing both your own images and images from books that you were collecting
1: yeah um so I made two, you can see it on the left hand side, there. on either side of the portraits there's two um, s- archives essentially. Um, one is an archive of a hundred of my own photographs which I took out of the documentary context in which they had been made and kind of reorganized them around looking and very much confronting the viewer. Every person in each one of those photographs is either returning the gaze or obstructing their own gaze or looking away and um, And that's a very personal archive where I mix in personal photographs with pictures that I took around the same time in a so-called professional capacity. Um, And then facing up to that is uh, 11 hanging screens which show an institutional archive of of looking. So it's um, scans that I made, over 40,000 scans from a book called The Who's Who of Southern Africa. Um, and it shows important people. And you can see, because I took one book per decade and put that on a screen, just uh, this continuous slideshow, you kind of see a kind of timeline of how important people looked. Um, and I was interested in that kind of um, institutional archive of importance facing up against my very personal archive of, of what I'd found important to look at.
0: So it became, it wasn't so much like a survey, but you were... De- you were- Pulling apart your own images, but also pulling apart these images that you were finding from other from our source materials. Could we just go to the next slide? I just wanted to. Um, there is some, a video link to the documentation of this moving image work, which we won't have time to look at tonight, but it's on. Uh, just if you Google Moses and Griffiths, you can find it. It goes for about five minutes. Um, so this was a four screen work. Um, I, I just wondered if you can put it in. Uh, give a little bit of context, a little bit of background to the work. Yeah, so um,
1: it it forms a part of retinal shift and and I think that um, retinal shift is an important body of work for me because um, it literally looks kind of back and forward Um, at my practice. It recontextualizes what i had done before and also Mm -hmm. through Moses and Griffiths I think found a new language to work with. Um, And so the the, the decision to work with moving images just really came from the subject matter. Um, I met these two men, Moses and Griffiths, who are both um, tour guides in the small town called Grahamstown and um, was struck by the radical way that they were telling an outdated history. Um, So the tours that they were giving of these two um, institutions um, was really telling English colonial history and I just couldn't believe that that was happening in 2011. So I filmed each one of them giving that official tour that they'd been giving anyway, and then worked with them over a couple of months on an alternative personal tour. And each one of those four narratives, I guess, is on a separate screen. Um, and again, it's about the things that um, kind of I was interested in from the beginning, the kind of the, the, kind of the external kind of way the story is told and what's hidden. Either behind walls or inside one. Yeah,
0: and, and we've, I think it was Moses that's the um, camera uh, obscure. obscure device. Yeah, um, and in terms of your relationship to the lens and and the viewfinder, it seemed to be. Uh, it was that the 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 person that had the most the strengths of connection to you as a as a. As a Photographer or? Um, the
1: camera obscura was in some ways incidental to that, that narrative, but it's a reason why I, I found Moses. I was interested in that camera obscura. I was it's interested. A it's a, some a beautiful work. It's an incredible, yeah. it, you know, it's this 19th century Victorian house that um, the, the kind of owner of it built this camera obscura and it's been restored to become a museum. And it casts this image down um, onto a plaster Paris table. It's an extraordinarily beautiful image, and at the same time, it's quite weird and um, freaky because you're, you're inside the camera the room is the camera and there's this lens and mirror in a turret in the roof that rotates around again it's this kind of panoptic outward looking Victorian view and the people that you're looking at don't know you're looking at them so it's got this kind of surveillance quality that that's very disturbing at the same time as it being very beautiful so there was a lot in that kind of contrast that interested me
0: Was the image corrected in terms of what was it the correct way around
1: um, it would so Moses would pull these ropes which swing the swing the, the mirror around 360 degrees and as he pulled them and then points to a different building that he'd speak about in his tour the world would kind of turn around which fascinated me um, it would he actually asked the viewers to kind of follow it around so it was always the correct way but I was really interested in seeing what happened
0: if the world turned upside down. Which we'll come to in a minute. Um, There was another part of this um, work which was a series of surveillance videos, I think, um, that kind of echoed like a contemporary, uh, there were police surveillance, was that correct? Um, uh, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, that's a work with CCTV which um, came from found videos that I um, that I got from the police and um, it's from the inner city Johannesburg um, CCTV program and um, it just was extraordinary because um, on each one of these clips, I, I, I found 12 of them. I think I found more actually, I chose 12 of them. Um, somebody, you see a crime taking place and then you see the person getting arrested with the help of this CCTV camera And then the police march them back to that camera and make them look up into the camera to identify them and connect them to the crime that you've just witnessed. So it's kind of the most kind of uh, overt example of of the kind of uh, lopsided power dynamics in the making of photographic images. And not only that, um, but the viewer is also heavily implicated in looking in this kind of um, uh, voyeuristic way at this this crime taking place um, and, and the moment when the the, the, the criminal uh, looks back at the camera, it's very confrontational and you feel very um, kind of aware of your own gaze.
0: It's also an example of you taking uh, material meant for one purpose and repurposing it and relating it to your own work that you've made and created as part of this exhibition. Um, can we go to the next slide please? Uh, which brings us to the penultimate uh, work be, uh, before uh, Y, which is Pixel Interface 2. Um, th- uh, l- end of last year, is that when it was shown?
1: Yeah, I'm, I made it, I started making it in 2014 and finished it last year. So,
0: um, do you want to tell the audience what we're looking at? Yes,
1: yeah, so, um, Pixel Interface. Definitely came out of retinal shift, um, and um, I was interested in kind of images breaking down and falling apart. We didn't talk about it in, in retinal shift, but I, I kind of was very interested in uh, getting in the way of the viewer's ability to consume an image, and I did things like smashing the glass that's mounted to the front of my photographs which is a whole other, there were many reasons why I did that. But one of them was to kind of obscure the image and obscure the representation that I had made. So um, pixel interface, I kind of wanted to break it apart further and really try and understand uh, physically what makes up an image. Um, And I did that by uh, making these microscopes, um, which are attached to digital video cameras. um, And those microscopes are mounted above... um, uh, horizontal television screens um, and and so I, I made videos that play on those television screens, which allow the the viewer to access what 's going on one way, but then the microscopes take one single row of pixels from each one of those screens and take them up to to projectors um, which um, project them onto the screen. And um, kind of overlap that single row of RGB pixels and kind of confuse it in some way by overlapping it. You get more colors mixed. But it's really about the work, it's about putting the viewer inside a kind of my own experiment with breaking down images to, and asking questions around the relationship between uh, representations and the kind of base particles that make them up.
0: Yeah. Is that, was that ever part of the the, the pho- photography process as well, where you sort of go and do it? Zooming into the negative to sort of reveal the grain. Did you ever play with those ideas? Um,
1: I, I don't. But um, the Antonioni film Blow Up was was you know one of my favourite films, and the sense that um, if you if you break if you blow the image up large enough and interrogate it to some degree, it will kind of produce some sort of meaning. Um, in some ways, this. Um, this work is kind of the antithesis of that that when you break the image down you kind of you you 're just left with these abstractions that that don 't mean anything and and I was interested if the viewer could kind of respond to the abstraction because the abstraction they look like any other RGB pixel, but they are incredibly specific only those films playing in those particular orders and those sequences could produce that combination of colors. So I'm really interested in the relationship between the specificity of it and and the kind of generalization of images and the ubiquity of images.
0: Um, I'll just point out this three screens, three projectors, and red, green, blue is three, so that's nine. Oh, we'll go to the next slide. Uh, let's talk about the work, why, why? Um, so, when did you start making this work? Um, I started it um, about three years
1: ago, um, so I'd met Gene Sherman many years ago. Um, and we ov- obviously had a common background, common interests. Um, she bought some of my work. Um, and and we kind of, I guess, had mentioned um, the possibility of doing a project together. Um, but three years ago, it finally became a, a reality in terms of both of our schedules. Um, and um, Jean very kindly brought me here to Sydney for the first time to meet her team and to see the space and to kind of start talking more seriously about a project. Um, and... Um, so that yeah, three years ago was really, really started. I started reading and researching and thinking about what I would like to do, um, and uh, that's when it
0: started. So is that how, that's how far forward you guys think when you're when you're. Um... Okay. Okay. So when did you first meet June?
1: Uh, I think it was 2007, um, but it's—I mean—it's an absolutely fantastic way of working. I mean, the, the degree of um, support on every level that that SCAF provides is just extraordinary, and 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 at the same time, the kind of freedom to—I took them on a real roller coaster with this project of many different ideas that were. Um, some of them quite out there um, and and eventually ended up with something which was it, it really felt to me like the ideal project to be working on at this stage of my career. It's exactly exactly what I wanted to be doing and I produced I think exactly the film that I wanted to make yeah. um, and to have the, the space and the support to do that is just extraordinary you know I, I, there hasn't been a day during the process that I haven't thought about how lucky
0: I am. Yeah, as, hands up if you've seen the work Already? Okay, so, so for those that haven't, it takes place in three time frames uh, past, present, and future on three screens. Um, and the narrative repeats three times, and as it repeats, it jumps screens. And so each time you what? It's the same, I think it's the same material each time, isn't it? So. Each time, if you watch it from the, the the beginning, and I would recommend if you are coming to the space, it's on the hour, every hour, and it's impo- I think it's important to watch it from, on, at that when you from the very beginning and to see it in uh, what I think is the right order. Um, so each time you watch the same sequences, it, rot- it rotates around the screens, and the f- focus of the audio is on the center screen, I think. Um, Adam, are you here? Yeah, Ad- Adam, who did the sound design, is that correct? He's, he's here as well. So, with Lee, one of our um, ex-students and current academics. Um, what was my question? Well, It's the three thing again, uh, I, I guess. Um, you worked with Herzog's cinematographer. Um, Yeah, so uh, an
1: incredible cinematographer by the name of um, Jörg Schmidt-Rittwein. But I think the the most important three that you didn't mention is the the geographic, and that was really the starting point in coming here. um, I started thinking about the kind of... Relationship of South Africans to Australia, the relationship of Australians to England and England to South Africa, these two colonies and the kind of um, the mothership um, and and the, the kind of narrative structure really came from that. Each one of the characters is one from one of those three locations, and we're very interested in how, um, like you say, it's actually three fifteen-minute films which each play on one of the three screens, um, and yet. Adam did an incredible job with the the composing and the sound design and and also the the sound editing. Um, And what we spoke about right from the beginning that it was going to be a 45-minute composition that kind of was in some ways almost like a fourth screen it 's like a fourth kind of spatiality that takes you on a journey with these characters and gives you a different perspective on each of the three characters as they occupy a different physical space in front of you um, and and i 'm not inc- very experienced with music, so it was I was you know, very privileged to c- to collaborate with somebody who who could kind of translate that and work with those ideas to to kind of yeah, you know, to give the score such a kind of strong and important part of the the, the project.
0: Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the way it's been presented in the space as well and um, the fact that, well, the, w- one thing I, I took from watching it all the way through is there's a really nice sense of play between the three the three time frames and there, there are moments where there is interaction between Time frames. My favourite is when one of the characters is using a metal detector and the sound of the metal detector, you see one of the other characters in other, one of the other frames react to that. Um, and I just wanted to talk about the way, the decisions that you made to... When did you lock down this particular work in terms of... I remember speaking uh, about a year ago and the work was quite different. Um,
1: um, hopefully, we'll lock it down soon. I just noticed a few
0: things I'd like to change in the sound edit, so I sent that back to the sound guys. You've got time. The show's not opening. Oh, wait. Okay. Um, anyway, I wanted. When you. when you So, did you, in terms of the actual project, um, you shot last year? Yeah, we shot
1: it in, in November. And just in terms of what you were saying. Um, uh, yeah the, the, I really wanted it to have the sense that these two kind of temporalities were kind of overlaid and bleeding into each other um, and um, one of the quotes that we use in the catalog um, is from David Burroughs um, where he says that if you cut into the present, the future bleeds through i think <laughs> um, but that that 's actually the first um, quote in the catalogue and that was just such a wonderful image of how yeah, um, these temporalities exist um, and and are influenced by, kind of influence the way we experience things. You, you haven't read the Dark Materials trilogy, have you? Uh,
0: Phil Pullman? Uh, a,
1: well, yeah, I, I might have read that. Okay.
0: There's, a, there's a lot of that sort of cutting through time and cutting through um, yeah. locations and stuff. Um, I've just done my 10,000 steps for the day. I don't know how I managed to do that but my it just started buzzing. Talk about the, um, the way it's been presented in the space, the, the, how there's a, a gap between the, like the tendency when you're dealing with sort of a triptych or three images, moving images next to one of to place them, butt them up against one another, you've, you've got this deliberate sort of black space between them. Um, also the black mirrored walls. And, and And uses as the sand, I know the sense kind of reflects the location
1: yeah the um, the working i 'm jumping back again, but the the working with three separate screens and the kind of interaction between them and the very tight editing i mean you you noticed something like that, and if you watched again, you 'd probably notice more and more things there was you know we edited always with three screens in front of us, so um the, and that really comes from Moses and Griffiths, um, this, I used the same, I worked with the same editor on those two projects and we kind of, Moses and Griffiths really kind of has this kind of, kind of constant interplay between what one man says, what himself the same man says in his personal and his official tour and then what the other man says. So it's this constant kind of reaction and overlay of things they say and then contradict themselves or each other. Um, and we kind of toned that down a lot with this film um, and wanted to make those kind of connections a lot more subtle. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, absolutely fundamental to it and, and that needed to happen on three screens. I think when you spatially separate them out, it's completely different to just... Compositing them on top of each yeah, other
0: it becomes like a, a, almost
1: like yeah and and it 's very much a spatial edit, so a lot of also what men um, Adam and the rest of the sound team were, were working on in sound was using sound spatially, you know we could place particular sounds whether it 's just the buzzing of a fly or the musical score or the sound of digging. We could place that anywhere between you know, all the three speakers quite specifically. Um, and and it was just really wonderful to work on to that level of detail on how one can direct the viewer's attention. The deck check?
0: Okay. Uh, well, can we play a clip while we're asking questions? Is that right? Oh, okay, Danielle? Do whatever we want. Okay. <laughs> He's been sleeping all day, hasn't he?
2: you well? How's everybody in Perth? Hannah, Daryl, and the twins? I'm thinking I might take you up on your offer of a place to stay while I look into opportunities there. I'm not sure if you know, but I've been living on the beach in P.E. for a few months now. It's been great to get away from things. I'm sure you heard about David's incident. It shook us all up. I took this job at the lighthouse because, because it came up, and it was a chance to get away from Joburg. And it's in a nature reserve, so I get to live the country life that seems to be in our genes. I don't have to deal with people. Just the constant bloody wind.
0: to the audience for questions.
1: Student studying media arts and production, and so question for me to you. And apologies if this is too abrupt. Is how have you managed to support yourself throughout your career and in terms of finances? I, I guess the the Pont um, Ponte City was was an extended um, work that took six seven
2: years. Um, how how have you managed to 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 keep up your work throughout that time?
1: Um, yeah, I, I'm. Very lucky. I have a gallery that um, sells sells my work. Um, they sell. They started selling the photographs, and now they sell the video works, film works, um, and the collages. So, um, you know, I, when I finished my studies, I thought that I would kind of uh, work for other artists as an assistant and whatever, while I made my own work. But this gallery found me, and they they started selling it. So, I just I've lived off that ever since. Um, which I realize is a very privileged way of working, so so I'm very grateful that that Goodman Gallery does that for me mikhail i was I was just wondering about the the transition from photographer to working with a cinematographer. Could you talk a little bit about that and um, did you have to give up a certain amount of control? Was that hard um, Good question. I mean, when I when I first worked with a cinematographer, I guess I might have been worried about giving up control because I am very very um, specific about how I like things to be composed. <laughs> um, but uh, it really wasn't an issue because I was I um, was so preoccupied by you know trying to direct these films and and kind of. Um, you know keep filmmaking, I really enjoy because you 've got so many you challenged by so many different things it challenges all your faculties and uh, you know it was really in the deep end for me, so I was really trying to hold things together in terms of what I wanted from the actors' decisions about where to film what and how and you know only part of that is this kind of relationship with the cinematographer so um Particularly in Y, but also in Moses and Griffiths, I, you know, I had to rely on the, the cinematographer because I could never have done it myself. And with Y, to work with this incredible 75-year-old uh, man who, who shot so many films in his life and had such a not just a knowledge of filmmaking, but a knowledge of narrative and how how to the, um, the, the both the editor and the 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 grader, the colorist for Y, said to me like. Wow the cinematographer has done like half our job for us because even the way he ended shots he would kind of suggest edits and in the way he set the camera it it kind of would suggest grades it's like we